The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Psalms here at Tower View, and if you're new to us, uh, we especially want to thank you. Maybe someone shared this with you, maybe you saw it on someone's stream or feed, whatever it was. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it very, very much. If you're local to us here in Kansas City, we do have a live in-person service each Sunday. We have three options there. You can drive in and just stay in your car, turn your dial to 90.7 FM. We have some open grass space during these warmer months where you can uh, bring your chair, or by reservation, you can come inside. Just let us know in advance so we have enough space to space people out. We'd love to see you. We know many of you are still at home, and we pray this is encouraging to you. We're in Psalm 3 today. Psalm 3 today. Let me read this with us, and then we'll pray, and we'll get into the sermon from there. Psalm 3, all eight verses coming out of the English Standard Version today. Summer of Psalms. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes, and many are rising against me, and many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation in God for him. But you, Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept, and I woke up again, verse 5, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who set themselves all around me, against me. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you break the teeth of the wicked. For salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. May God bless the reading, hearing, and doing of his word. Let's join together in prayer, and we'll get started this morning with Psalm 3, the Summer of Psalms. As we look at the psalm of lament and some other things that come through the psalm. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for our time. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Lord, we count it all joy to, to be here together. Father, we know it's online. It's different. But Father, even through this medium, would you use this to reach people for Jesus Christ? Would people come to know you, to believe in your son for the first time? But for those of us who do know you. Father, use this psalm, one we've read through, one we've heard before, but maybe never heard preached and expounded. Father, help us to see your word come to life by the power of your spirit working in our hearts and minds and, and everything about us. Lord, we love you. Thank you again. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was not around during this time, and I'll pick on Pastor Nelson, who is behind the scenes recording for us today. Uh, the Watergate scandal of President Nixon back in the 1970s. That excludes a lot of you watching this. And he, but, but a lot of you watching this will remember that time. And whether you agreed with that man, uh, Richard Nixon, politically, it was a sad spectacle to watch, even after in generations. It was a terrifyingly shocking, depressing, and humiliating time for Mr. and Mrs. Nixon to endure. I mean, think about it. One day, you're the most powerful man in the world. You're the center of attention. You're surrounded by secret agents, uh, secret service agents, who will give their life for you. 
Uh, your words are plastered on the front page of newspapers around the world as president. And at press conference, reporters tried to read between the lines of every sentence that you had to say. And what you say can make the stock market or the economy go up or down. And when you give orders, a bunch of people under you jump to make it happen because that's what they're supposed to do. And as president, Nixon and all presidents live in a mansion with servants attending to their every need. There's a private jet, there's a private limousine, helicopter, private retreat at your disposal as you carry out the nation's business. But as Nixon's saga back in the 70s showed us, the next day when he resigned in disgrace, the presidency was in shambles. He left the public eye, he moved out of the White House, he lost the privilege. Really nobody cared anymore what he had to say or think unless he was ready to confess his guilt at the scandal that ensued. And his life changed drastically on that fateful day. Life changed forever. And in a similar but worse vein, David, who we're going to read about, and we did read about today, was utterly destroyed. David had the same thing. He had been ruling for 40 years. But David in the psalm was now at the mercy of his son Absalom. Absalom was rebelling against David as a fulfillment of the prophecy that Nathan the prophet gave David when he killed Uriah the Hittite to, to seek after that relationship with Bathsheba. And yet, through all the commotion, God was with David and was working on his behalf to restore him and remind him of his love. Yet, like Nixon, David lost it all. No one really cared anymore about David, but yet God was still on his side. Reminds us of Hebrews 13.5, which says, and God being quoted here, it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I mean, few of us have gone through anything close to the trauma of what David was experiencing. But in lesser ways, you probably had times where you can identify with David. You know, maybe you thought things were going fine at work, but you suddenly got called into the office and you were fired. And false accusations or allegations were brought against you by those you entrusted. You were at work and the firing made the prospect of a job look very bleak, especially in a COVID time like this. Your life seemingly fell apart. Or perhaps one of your children grew up and turned against you and took up a lifestyle of drugs or sex or just immorality that is totally opposed to the values you raised them in. And, and they level all sorts of accusations against you and have resisted every type of talk or reconciliation. And your many years of love and sacrifice are met with scorn and anger. Your life fell apart. Or, or much to your shock, maybe you know someone or, or sadly maybe you've experienced your mate that your husband or your wife suddenly announcing that they were having an affair, that they were going to leave you for someone else and they wanted a divorce, yet you had no hint of the situation, you had no advanced knowledge of it, you thought things were fine, you were serving together in the church, you trusted them, you, you were both involved in your kids' activities, but suddenly you realize you've been lied to and deceived for a very long time. And life as you knew it suddenly changed drastically and fell you know, what do you do when life falls apart? You know, Richard Nixon, David, these scenarios, what do you do? And how do you handle it? Well, today's big idea speaks to this a little bit. It, it says that whenever life, wherever life takes you, no matter how hard or how dark, you can carry on with God there because he really does well within you. Look, there is no such thing as disembodied theology divorced from the mess and muck of life. Chuck Colson, who was part of that time of Richard Nixon, who became a Christian, a Christian leader, said this, he said, life is a mess, quote, life is a mess, and theology, biblical theology, must be lived out in the midst of that mess, end quote. 
Look, friend, you can make a mess of your life, but you simply cannot fall down so deep that the grace of God is out of your grasp. In fact, you should not be discouraged at the messiness and unpredictability of your life. God is in the middle of the mess with his sovereign hand. And so today, in Psalm 3, we're going to see three actions that we can take when walking through life with the Lord during messy times. And they're straight from the text. First, in verses 1 and 2, you are going to pitch your troubles like a, like a baseball pitcher. Pitch your troubles to the Lord. Then you're going to, in verses 3 to 6, David's going to put his trust in the Lord. Put your trust in the Lord. And finally, you're going to present, as David did, your toil to the Lord in verses 7 to 8. Now this, the, the psalm is very near to us because it's a very familiar story. I'll just give you the quick history of it to remind you. Psalm 3 introduces us to the fact David is running away from Absalom. Well, why was he doing that? Well, David, of course, had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. God told him the sword would never leave his house. So much that his oldest son, Amnon, was killed by Absalom, the one who's rebelling here, because he raped his sister Tamar, his half-sister Tamar. And Absalom was a beautiful man, the scripture says. He had charisma and shrewdness, and, and many people loved him over the years because David was kind of holed up in the, in, in the, in the palace while, while Absalom was winning and leading over and winning the people back. And Absalom was away for a few years from David. David forgave him. David wouldn't speak to him for a few years, and their relationship went back and forth. But one day, Absalom stood at the gate, and every time someone came in, he would say to those people, you know... If I were king, I'd do something better around here. My father, you know, he's good, but I would be a lot better than him. Oh, doesn't that sound like America today <laughs> and the 2020 situation we are in? Friends, this is a psalm of lament. This is a time in which the psalmist sings the blues and lifts up the sorrows of his heart and complaint to God. I want to remind you that this is a real psalm. This is a real-life psalm. This is not a psalm that is, that is out there somewhere where it just you know, makes a hallmark card of people. Know. This is real life. David's life, mainly because of his sin, is being lived out in front of people, and he is being forsaken, not by God, but by the people who swore their allegiance to him. And this is the message of the psalm. Things are never as bad as they seem to be when the Lord is on your side. And we're going to see that as we go through it today. The first thing I want you to notice, though, as we see how to navigate the messiness of life, is that you are to pitch your troubles to the Lord. Pitch your troubles to the Lord. Look at verses 1 and 2. This is, this is David, the, the, the blues singer of his time. And, and he's led the kingdom to international peace. He's united the kingdom of Israel with tribes. And yet his own son is rebelling against him. The man after God's own heart was at a place where it seemed God had turned his back on him. And so David complains. And guess what? You and I, we would do that too, wouldn't we? But who are you going to complain to? Who's going to listen to you? In verses 1 and 2, David brought his complaints to the Lord. And you notice that word there in verse 1, or verses 1 and 2. It's the word many. Many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul. And this is the psalm that we see this in. David's troubles were growing they were insurmountable, and they were real when he prayed to the Lord. Notice in verse 1, as he pitches his troubles to the Lord, the first thing he does is he tells God what his enemies are carrying out. He tells God what his enemies are carrying out. He says, O oh Lord, how many are my foes? 
It was enough that David's beloved son became his declared enemy. But now many of David's people also turned against him and joined Absalom's rebellion. People knew David, they loved him, but, but, but their trust were, were ready now to end his reign. He, didn't, he wouldn't trust anybody. Everywhere he looked, friends became foes, and David found himself surrounded by his enemies. Friend, brother, sister in Christ, this could happen to you many times. Life can bring you to a tight place where you are surrounded by people who are seeking you with evil intentions. People you know, people you trust, people you love can work to hurt you rather than help you. And church family, don't think that can't happen in the body of Christ. Sadly, sinfully, remorsefully, it does happen. May it not happen at Tower View or any gospel-centered church, but it can happen. So he says in the second part of verse 1, he said, Many are my foes, but next, many are rising against me. This is military language. David was outnumbered. He knew it, and his opposition was growing. And more and more people are switching from David to Absalom and taking a stand against David. And David responded by telling the Lord what his enemies were carrying out and what his enemies were doing. That's verse 1. But, but as he's pitching his troubles, he tells God not only what his enemies are, are carrying out, but secondly here at some point he says he tells God what his enemies are claiming in verse 2. I mean, David's heart is broken. David's heart is broken by what they're doing to him, and it's not stopped by what his enemies are saying about him. Look at verse 2. You see that third repetition of many? He said, many are my foes, many are rising up against me. Now verse 2, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for God, salvation in God. Look, I think, and I speak for Pastor Nelson and, and, and Brother Craig and others who, who have worked with ministry for a long time. We see people go through things that were so bad that it seemed only God could save them. There wasn't a, a word we could say. There wasn't a formula we could give. But I've never seen someone go through something that was so bad that I thought not only that I thought that not even God could save that person. Yet this is the word on the street about David's situation. There are times when you look at people and you think, boy, how are they going to get out of that pickle, that hot mess? And that's exactly what they were saying about David. Even God can't save David. He's so far gone. He's so old. He's so out of touch with reality that no one can save him. Charles Spurgeon, in his commentary in verse 2, said it this way. He said, quote, It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. Many are saying, David said of my soul, there's no salvation. The reference of the soul indicates this is a personal struggle. This is a family dispute. This is a civil war. And a spiritual one at that. The words for him indicate that God, who's more than able to rescue, to help, and to deliver, was not willing to do so for David. These people said, we don't care what David says. God ain't going to come to his rescue, to put it in simple terms. And David's situation led onlookers to conclude that God had turned his back. And that would be the logical conclusion. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He'd ordered the... the, the the hit on Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. When he repented, God forgave them, but David still had to face the music of consequences for his sin. 2 Samuel 12, 11. The Lord said, Behold, I will raise up against you evil out of your own house. And his promise was fulfilled, of course, now in Absalom's rebellion against David, and it caused people to believe that God had forsaken David. And there is an important warning for you here, Christian. As we pitch our troubles to the Lord, as we tell Him what's being carried out, as we tell Him what, what people are, are saying or what people are, are claiming, 
The Lord will forgive your sin, but he may not remove all the consequences. You know, there's a story about a little boy who constantly rebelled against his parents. And to teach him a lesson, his father told him he'd drive a nail into the door of their barn outside every time he disobeyed. And after seeing the nails that up on that door, the son finally stopped and repented and asked forgiveness of his rebellion. But to show his forgiveness, the father removed the nails from the door. And later, the son returned again with tears in his eyes, and the father asked his son, he said, son, what's wrong? And the son answered, he said, the nails are removed, but the holes, daddy, are still there. They remain. And friends, so it is with our sin. When the sin is forgiven, the consequences may still remain. And so Psalm 3 warns us that the scars of our sins may remain after the wound has really been healed. That it doesn't just all magically go away like you see in those, those, those cheesy Christmas movies where things just seemingly work out the way we expect them to. That's not real life. It also warns us in Psalm 3 not to commit spiritual malpractice by misdiagnosing other people's problems. David did the right thing. He pitched, he, he threw, or, or in the language of 1 Peter 5, 7, he cast all his cares on God. What they were claiming, what they were carrying out, but those who witnessed David said there is no hope for him. But the doctor to whom David referred was David's personal physician. God knew, and God could save, but we'll get there in the next point. But rather than drawing false conclusions, David brought his complaint to the Lord, and friends, so should you. You got a problem in your life? Take it to the Lord. Pitch it to him. Throw it in there. Throw him a curveball. Throw him a knuckleball. He doesn't care. He can catch everything you've got. And trust me, he's able to handle it. That's point number one. Pitch your troubles to the Lord. Number two, not only should we pitch our troubles to the Lord, but we should put our trust in the Lord. Put our trust in the Lord. Verses 3 through 6. So in those opening verses, David complained about what his enemies were doing to him and saying about him. And in verses 3 to 6, David now shifts his problem, his pitching, if you will, away from himself to the Lord. And this is the only sure way that you and I can come to face the messiness of life. James Montgomery Boyce said it this way, I think very well, the former uh, pastor of years gone by at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, had one of his commentaries that's very helpful for this sermon. He said, when a believer, quote, when a believer gazes too long at his enemies, the force against him seems to grow in size until it appears to be overwhelming. But when he turns his thoughts to God, like David here, God is seen in his true great stature, and the enemies shrink to manageable proportions, end quote. And this is what David does. He does not respond to the schemes, the deeds, and the threats of Absalom and his enemies by getting emotional, by breaking things, by punching the wall. He gets theological. He takes all that Bible knowledge seated within him and takes it out to live practically. And he reminds himself in these three verses who it God is and what God has done for him. And friend, that is a reminder of what we should do too. So we are to put our trust in the Lord. And in verse 3, he tells us the first way we put our trust in the Lord is in his character, in God's character. Look back at verse 3. He says, as he shifts the language here, But you, O Lord, are a shield to me. Note these, my glory and the lifter of my head. The shield to me, my glory and the lifter of my head. That's very personal. These are not words by, of one who's forsaken by God. They are a testimony of one who has personally been given a relationship and has a relationship with the Lord. Notice that first one in God's character. The Lord is a shield. When Abraham defeated in Genesis 15, 
the enemies of Sodom and Gomorrah, he said, God told Abraham, Abraham, fear not, I am your shield. I am your shield. And this is the confidence of all of us who trust the Lord. He is a shield around us. And you know what a shield is. A shield is a round or maybe a, a kind of a rectangular or a square thing that you put in front of you to block the enemy's arrows or advance or sword or spear, whatever it is. But a shield has limited perception. It's not like you're in you know, a Star Wars movie where you're, you're protected on all sides by a force field. The shield David was referring to was probably a wooden little circle thing that probably barely covered the front of his chest. But the one who trusts doesn't have to worry about leaving sides unprotected. God is working, and David is trusting in his character because the Lord is a shield, notice the words, about me, about me. He covers, God does, every side. We have a sovereign, complete, unfailing protection in God himself. And that's what he says. But my God is my shield. He, he watches all around me. But secondly, he says he's going to put his trust in, in, in the Lord, in his character, because the Lord is his glory. And this typically refers to the glory of God. But when referencing to humans, it speaks of dignity and honor. What is being said here, what David is saying, is there's a sense of self-identity. There's a sense of his, his ID being found in God alone. Just as a Christian, your idea is not on what you do, it's what Christ has done for you. He's been banished from his throne, he's been exiled from a city, yet David declares his honor was not in his power, his riches, his subjects, his army, or anything. He said, the Lord is my glory. The Lord is it. David, in very simple language, just says, I am somebody. Not because I'm a king, but because I belong to the one who is the true king of heaven and earth. The Lord is my glory. He's a shield around me. He's the glory of my life. But finally, he's the lifter of my head. Did you notice that verse 3? That sounds kind of funny. He's the lifter of my head. In 2 Samuel 15, 30, it reports that David fled to the Mount of Olives. And his head <coughs> was covered. It was downcast. It was facing down in shame. And all the people who were around him covered their heads. And you can feel, can't you, the pain and the shame David experienced. It caused him to cover his head. It's, it's almost like there's a famous, uh, some of you all like those memes that are around several years ago. Uh, back when Peyton Manning was playing football around 2012, 2013, kind of his last resurrection uh, to uh, football glory. There was a famous meme where they just got trampled. I don't think they even played. They just got trampled. And, and you just see this picture some photographer took of Peyton Manning just staring off into Never Never Land. He was shamed. His head was down, and this proud man had just been shown the door uh, with his football mentality. There's nothing he could do. And in a much greater way, there's nothing David could do to lift his head in victory. But he said, it's not me. It's the Lord who's the lifter of my head. And in ancient times, subjects would bow before the king as he judged their case. And if the king agreed with them... He would, he would raise them up. But if he didn't agree with them, he'd put their foot on their neck as a sign of disapproval. And David said, look, I presented my case to the Lord, and I'm confident when he hears it, he's going to lift me up and lift my head up. So David is putting his trust in the Lord, first in his character. But secondly, verses 4 to 6, he's going to put his trust in God's, not only his character, but his calendar. Yes, his calendar. So what gave David such confidence? I mean, David based his confidence on what God had already done for him. 
David had a faith file to remind himself of the faithfulness of God throughout all his life. From when he was a shepherd boy, an unknown shepherd in the family of Jesse, up until the time he was fled from the throne. You notice in verse 4, another way of God's character that is answered is God's answer in prayer in his time. David said in verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. This is a powerful testimony. This is a powerful testimony. David prayed. He said, I cried aloud. This expresses the fervency of David's prayer, that he, he did it very frequently. There's a cry out to the Lord. I mean, look, your prayers will not mean anything to God until they mean everything to you. Until you see them as personal as David did here, nothing will matter. Nothing will matter at all. And so he says, the Lord answered his prayer. And notice it's from his holy hill. David had been banished from his physical throne, but his enemies had not banished God from his throne. And God is still on his throne. And in God's calendar time, God was showing David, David, I'm going to answer you. I'm going to answer your prayer request. You can trust in me. But you also, he's trusting God's calendar because it's God's timing that God sustains him. That God sustains him. And so in verse 5, he says, I lay down and slept. I woke up again, for the Lord sustained me. With the increasing trouble he faced, you would think David would be, like Pastor Nelson and I took on the phone, we paced all around the world, getting our steps in for the day. But somehow David was able to lay down. Somehow he did not lay down with one eye open, watching for his enemies. He lay down and went to sleep. And in this vulnerable position, David's enemies could have watched a sneak attack and taken his life simply as he slept. But David lay down and went to sleep and woke up in the morning. How? He tells you, because the Lord sustained him. This is proof that has been there for you all the time, Christian. You are still here. God has protected you. God has sustained you. God has answered his calendar, in his calendar way everything in his time. You've laid down and went to sleep and woke up again. Because the Lord sustains you. And Christian, no matter what you're facing, if you're a Christian here today, you are justified, you are sanctified, you are set apart, you are covered by the blood of the Lamb. No matter what this world throws at you, you can sleep well at night because Christ holds you securely in his grasp. God not only answered his prayer, he sustained him. And verse 6, as David trusted God's calendar, God is also relieving his fear. Notice verse 6. He says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. In verses 1 and 2, David repeatedly speaks of many enemies. Now he describes them in more concrete terms. He says, many thousands of people. That's not hyperbole. That's not exaggeration or a or, or wives' tale. Thousands of people literally had set themselves against him. His former captains and guards and army chiefs and all those people are now against him on the other side of the table. This doesn't mean David was not afraid. This doesn't mean that David did not have anything to be afraid of. He had plenty of reasons to be afraid. His son was coming after him, and he knew it. But because he knew his, who his God was and what his God had done for him, David determined that he was not going to allow fear to dictate how he responded. Courage is just fear that has said its prayers. Courage is just a fear that has said its prayers. The Bible calls that faith. Trust in God, dear Christian, because God relieves your fear. It doesn't matter how great the opposition is. 
Numbers are not everything. You can look at every story from, from the disciples after the resurrection. They literally, as the, as the Greeks said, turned the world upside down. You can look at the death of Jesus. You can see the, the, the story of Gideon. You can see the people of Israel. You can see Elisha and his servant. The list goes on and on and on and on. God does not care necessarily about the number against you. He cares about the trust and faith of your heart and where that stands in the process. And Christian, as we, and I posted this on my Facebook earlier this week, is as many people are, are not going to come back to church, or at least in this interim time, or maybe forever, as churches look around and say, wow, what happened to all the people? We trust not in numbers, friends. We trust not that we're holier than thou's. We trust that God is going to do some cleansing in his church. And like David, no matter what faces our church, what faces whatever church in front of us, the gates of hell will never prevail against it especially the universal church in context. So David has pitched his troubles to the Lord. He's put his trust in the character of God, the calendar of God. And finally, he, in the last two verses here, he's going to present his toil. He's going to present his toil to the Lord. And so Psalm 3 is this prayer, but it's not really until verses 7 and 8 that he actually makes any request. He brings his complaint before the Lord. He pitches those troubles he then places his confidence, his trust in the Lord, but now he gives the conflict to the Lord who's ready, who's willing, and who's able to fight for him and give him the victory. And Christian, don't forget, the Lord is on your side as well. So David is going to put and place his toil, or present his toil rather, to the Lord. And, I, and the first thing I want you to see here is you need to remember that God will strive for you. Look at verse 7. He says, you've put... Uh, excuse me, he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you break the teeth of the wicked. David prays, Arise, O Lord. That seems kind of presumptuous, doesn't it? I mean, is he telling God what to do, like some genie in Aladdin's bottle? But this is a war cry, which David calls on the Lord to act on his behalf. This was also Moses' cry in Numbers 10.35. He said, Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord. And let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Israel consistently, constantly, perpetually trusted that the Lord would fight their battles. So David says, Arise, Lord. And then he says, Save me, O oh my God. In verse 2, the people were saying there is no salvation, but David refused to believe that report. He went to God for himself and called him. Did you notice that? He said, He's, he's my God. Save me, O oh my God. On the basis of his personal relationship with the Lord, he knew the Lord would save, help, deliver, and liberate him in his time and in his way. And David's bold request was based on two realities. Don't miss these. He said, for you are to strike all the enemies on the cheek, and you're to crush or crash the teeth of the wicked. And this is another first. You know, in the psalm, I didn't mention it the first. This is the first psalm that we have that called the psalm. It's the first time we see David's name appear in a psalm. It's the first time we have a setting for the psalm. But it's also the first time, it seems, that we have what, what theological terms call a precatory psalm. Or in layman's term, a precatory psalm is, you, go get a board, uh, or get a board, smash a board, just take them out, board. That's basically what a precatory psalm is. The words are harsh. But David doesn't take matters into his own hands. He's asking God to fight his battles. Striking the chief pictures insult more than pain. David asked the Lord, literally, to put his enemies into their place. 
breaking the teeth pictures the wicked as ravenous animals. But David does not ask God to kill him. He just asks him to punch out the teeth. So kind of like one of those, those, uh, you know, those things on, if you remember the Price is Right, I think Drew Carey still does it. They have a game on there where you punch the bag, and you reach in there, and you grab the prize out. It's kind of the picture I have in my head. He's going to break their teeth, just boom, and it's done. So that he won't be devoured. That's the reason. But this you can mark down. God does not have to move you to protect you. God doesn't have to move you to protect you. You can be surrounded by all sorts of predators, but God can literally knock out their teeth. He's striving for you. He's fighting for you. Because you deserve it, because you've earned it, no, we were by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. But God will never leave nor forsake those that are his. And Christian, that is not prosperity, hoopla theology. That is biblical truth, and David is living it out. So he is he's presenting his toil to the Lord, and God is going to strive for him. And the last point here, as you see in verse 8, is God will be a shield for him. Didn't we already see that? Yes, but I want to share that a little bit more. Verse 8 says something so profound, it's worth underlining if you've not done it already. Verse 8, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Remember verse 2, many people had said there was no salvation for David and God, but they did not have the last word. Salvation does not belong to man, it belongs to God. Christian, just as Satan will look at you when you sin and say, you can't be a Christian because you did this, fill in the blank, whatever it is. How could God forgive someone like you? Christ, the perfect God-man, stands in your place and says, away, Satan. Show the nails, show the scars. It is finished. Christian, there's no accusation anyone, spiritual or physical, can bring against you if you're truly in Christ that can separate you from Christ. And so it is with David. Jonah 2.8.9 says it this way, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And Jonah said, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. If you want to be really geeky, greeky, or theologically with this, this is called monergism. It means that salvation is only from God. There's another group or another thought line that says that, that, that basically you can work together with God to achieve your salvation somehow, friends. That's not true at all. You're either saved by Christ alone or God alone, or you're not saved at all. And that's what we know. God does not need any elements to help produce salvation. God alone is enough to call you, to save you, to redeem you, to forgive you, to sustain you, to sanctify you, and someday in His presence glorify you all by the power of His name. The only thing we contribute to the process of our salvation is the sin we bring. God does the rest. And David prays finally, your blessing be on your people. This is the final benediction. It makes it clear that this is a personal testimony, not just about David. It's for all of those, especially those of us who trust in the Lord. So friend, as we close, I just want to encourage you with this. You may have a lot of things going on. You may have people at your throat like David, maybe not physically, but maybe they're, they're, they're claiming things about you. Maybe things are being said about you. Have you prayed about it? Have you asked God to take it? Have you pitched your troubles to the Lord? Have you put your trust in the Lord? Have you put, pr presented your toil to the Lord? That's what he tells you. This isn't a formula. But as you pitch your troubles, as you put your trust in the Lord, as you protect 
Right, represent your toil to him. There's no secret what God can do. What God did for David, God can do for you. God will give you the victory in his time, through his character, on the basis of what he has done, and the Lord is faithful to bless his people. Look, if you're watching this, I just want to share something with you as we close. We know when we're, we're preaching to Christians primarily, but if you're not a Christian, and that phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord, really trips you up, uh, I'm kind of glad it did. I don't mean that meanly. But friends, you need to realize this, is that you are outside of God if you do not have a personal relationship with his one and only son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says your sin has separated you from God. There's nothing you can do to come back to him. The only thing you can do to be saved is to do what David did and throw yourself like, like a man jumping out of an airplane, grabs onto that parachute. The only one who can carry you from this life safely to the next is Jesus Christ. You bring nothing to the table. Jesus brought it all, and it was enough. It was sufficient, and on that cross of 2,000 years ago, he took the punishment for our sin. He took our place. He took the wrath we deserved. He was buried, and three days later, praise the Lord, he rose again. All because he loved you so much. It's a fact. The Bible says, and you may have heard it before, that God so loved the world, John 3, 16, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal and everlasting life. The Bible says there's salvation in no other name except Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's part of our scripture reading for Sunday. So, friend, if you're here today, you're watching this again, we're so super stoked, so grateful for your time today. Could have been doing a lot of things. Maybe someone brought you this. Maybe you found it by yourself. Thank you for watching. But if you do not know, if you died today, where you'd spend eternity, would you message us? Would you call us? 816-368-1330. Call or text us. Reach out. Write us a letter. Send us an email. It's all on our website. tyrbkc.com. We'd love to touch base with you. Thank you so much. Guys, let's pray. We'll be done. Thank you for your time today. Let's pray. Fathers, we come before you. We do thank you that we can pitch our troubles to you. That we can place our trust in you. And Father, we can present our toil to you. And through it all, Lord, you are faithful. Through all the mess of life, through all the craziness of life, through all the lamenting of life, through all the, the, the nastiness of life, you are there. Father, let us not take that for granted. But may we always remember it is by grace that we have breath, and by grace you are on our side. Father, again, we have nothing good in us, but because of Christ, we've been saved and redeemed and given his righteousness. Thank you so much. We pray all this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for watching, guys. God bless, and have a great day.